Hi, welcome to the October edition of Palliative Care Update Echo with the Association of Palliative Medicine and Hospice UK. It's a crammed month as ever. Matt, Matt Dory is going to lead us in thinking about the value of protocols uh, in terms of securing patient safety and good quality care, personalised care. Kate Fleming has a really interesting paper on seven-day palliative care service and its impact on patients and carers and staff. I'm going to be looking at the Meta Echo Conference and in particular the use of Echo across the world in uh, palliative care services and the use of AI in improving the Echo knowledge transfer. And then we've got Dr. Claire Raymond from Bradford talking about the REACT project in Bradford, looking at palliative care services in the A&E department. Hope you enjoy it. Before we actually get into any uh, meat, what I wanted to do was, and Max as well, I think it would be remiss if we didn't mention the current events, the terrible current events happening around the world. Um, I've we've really got nothing much to say on it other than uh, how terrible it is. The, the two earthquakes in Afghanistan and, of course, the Gaza-Israel thing, which... Um, if I say more than a few words, it pegs you on either side, other than to say that the, the terrible loss of humanity, which is happening at the moment, to, to acknowledge that and, and our thoughts out to to the whole, whole of that situation. So let's go through to our update. As Anita uh, um, uh, quite uh, correctly says, we're doing a... a, a, a a, a talk about systems thinking and 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 where does palliative care fit in to the current system and just as a reminder uh, this is the book uh, which i have now finished reading thinking and systems by donella meadows it is fantastic i recommend it and it makes you think in a different way um it was i didn't realize till afterwards uh, that it, it was actually written post her death, and it's a collection of the notes she used to give to her students. Um, very, very clear, very good. Um, the, one of the things we took out of that, I don't know if you remember, but just to refresh, because it helps us, is the difference between a simple machine and a complex machine, a simple machine like a bike. And what, what I mean by that is if the chain breaks in a bike, no matter how hard you pedal, it ain't, the back wheel isn't moving. So, So one thing breaks, the whole machine breaks. A complex machine, like the picture of that crazy biochemistry, which just looks like a colored map there, is actually all the enzymes that we know of in the liver and how they all interact. If one enzyme doesn't work, there are subsidiary accessory pathways by which that liver can still metabolize whatever it is. And it's not just biological systems which are complex. Um, what we could talk about is the NHS is a complex machine. And the, the analogy we used was, um, imagine if on the, I think this is the M25, there you go, um, a, a big traffic jam, You, if, it, if everything's blocked in that traffic jam, people can go down the subsidiary side roads, the country roads. Okay, they they work, they get you from A to B, but they're a lot slower, they're less efficient. 
Um, and what we've got at the moment is is an NHS in which a lot of the motorways are blocked and a lot of the subsidiary, the accessory roads are being accessed and, and, and it's falling to people which aren't the main route to get from A to B, the primary care and things. And, and this is, uh, we diagnose this as a frail NHS. And, and, and rather than, you know, like a cancer trajectory, these are the trajectories of, of disease. You know, cancer goes along and then suddenly changes and there's frailty where you go along and there's the a dip, but you get a bit back and dip bit back a frailty trajectory is 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 kind of all over the place it's up and down it's left and right but overall it's down and and we've got this this failure or frailier of of the nhs in that it's following this trajectory at the moment and we are amongst that wider system um so what instantly got max thinking because he asked me so Matt, how do we contribute to these frailing systems? Not just, not not just um, how do we fix it because it's a massive thing, but how do we ourselves in palliative care contribute to it? And, and that got me thinking. And 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 although I'm not going to talk about palliative care specifically, I would love you in the chat box to think about that. But also, I want to look at. Um, an example, and you'll you'll see. So here's story time. I've got young kids, so I see lots of CBBs. But imagine this: uh, you're in. A, there's a nursing home assistant, and Bob, Bob, there, he's not quite right. So, so the nursing home assistant phones her manager. I don't think Bob's quite right. Her manager hears the concerns of the nursing assistant. He's not quite right, and so she follows protocol. And to be safe, ask the nursing home assistant. Well, probably wiser to phone one one one, isn't it? Uh, if you're worried, then I'm worried. Let's phone 111. 111 is phoned and the operator follows their algorithm, which um, has this uh, complete carte blanche assumption that the patient has simultaneous stroke, uh, Ebola and multi-trauma. It's got a very... Um, uh, uh, it, it, it definitely got it. So, so let's phone an ambulance to be safe. And so the ambulance crew come and the safest action really is, well, Bob's not quite right. Let's take him to ED. And it's late now. It's long in the day. <coughs> Sorry. And, and we wait, wait a long time and some tests done, blood tests are done. Nothing really specific. But but we were admitted to the ward for observation overnight. It's too late to go home and everything's OK. So we discharge back to the nursing home the next day with no real changes to anything. Um, The question is. Is this optimum care? Did did we actually play it safest? Although along every step, you can see the justification quite clearly. Did we cause a lot of psychological stress or stress generally? Did we add more people to a wider system, an overloaded system to on that motorway and possibly hinder others? What degree of uncertainty warrants what degree of escalation? These are big questions which I was raising about this scenario, which, although is is uh, is is made up, I, I think we all can relate to. What could have been done differently? So, so on one big arrow, the wider, the big arrow, the 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 system is preset, is playing it safe, deferring responsibility, and there's a smaller arrow, arrow which is going the other direction, seeing it as taking responsibility, uh, taking a risk. Yeah, seem to take a risk, taking responsibility for it, and and what what in, in research you probably know what could be done differently. Well, you, do you know about type one and type two errors, uh, and and 
and and there's two errors, aren't there? The type one error is 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 a false positive. If the investigator rejects a null hypoth hypothesis that is actually true in the population, a type two error, false negative occurs. If the investigator fails to reject a null hypothesis, it's actually false in the population. Just to make it really simple, type one error is the patient doesn't need to go in, but is sent in. And a type two error is the patient needs to go in, but is not sent in. So, so there's two risks, there's two errors which could happen. One as a false positive, one as a false negative. And the, the type one error, the patient doesn't need to go in, but is sent in, that is often seen as an inevitable inherency of the system. That's just the way the system works. Uh, there was no other way that Bob was going to end up through those systems uh, because the arrows heavily weighted that way it is, is, is going to end up in hospital. The type two error though, is seen in a slightly different way. It's seen as it's more judgment on the individual person. Um, is 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 we should avoid that. So so we've got this waiting in our system to to act and get it wrong is better than not acting and and getting it wrong, if that makes sense. So it's better to send the patient in and be wrong than it is not to send in and get wrong. Um, the, 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 there's that thinking, and 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 you could argue about statistics of which proportion is is, is, is which one's greater than the other. I, I don't know, but it's, as under the principles that that's what's happening. We all we do know, however, that there they, there shouldn't be so many people coming into the ED because there's a whole bunch of studies showing these potentially inappropriate admissions inverted commas um, into into ED. There's very recent papers there which are saying exactly the same thing. I just wanted to balance that a little bit and say and remind everyone of this brilliant paper in Nature, um, Nature, big, big journal, which categorically says actually that uh, palliative care as a specialty results in fewer emergency department visits. So we can give that to our commissioners and say, look, look, we're saving you money. So so just just to, to be helpful and have that, that there. But the wider context, how can we change this system? Um, you'll be very glad, or not glad, but I, I expect that I don't have an answer to this, but I do have some thoughts. And, and maybe, um, oh, Sorry, Lucy Weld was going to do a presentation ED later, and I, I forgot to change that. We've got a new presentation with Claire, e equally excellently good, which we'll, we'll come to. So I'm going to take oh, a thread and pull it. I, I bet all of us here have been involved in policy writing in some regard. Um, I, I would uh, just challenge you a little bit. How many policies in your hospice or hospital do you actually have? And you'll see where I'm going with this. So the purpose of policies, this is from uh, I don't, the policy commission or something, and it's American. That's why they spelt behavior wrong. Policies articulate goals that are narrower than strategic objectives and identify limits or boundaries for behavior and actions that are necessary to complete those goals. OK, so uh, I've drawn you a picture of a football picture and and and. I'm going to try and define policies in using a football an analogy, if you like. And then you'll see, hopefully, God willing, see where, where, where I'm going with this. Football has rules, i.e. you can't pick it up. 
it's that if you pick it up with your hands, that's a handball, it's a foul. You can't, there's sidelines. If you kick it off the sidelines, you have to throw it in. A goal results in uh, a point to, to, to one side. Um, you start in the center, etc., etc. But the rules of football don't uh, define how you actually play the game. Don't tell the players what formation to use, when to run up the pitch, when to dribble, when to pass, when to shoot. They, they, the rules of football give a framework to allow people to play that game. Now, if the rules were different, if you're if you're a shoe, a boat, or a hat, and you're rolling dice, that's a completely different game. That's monopoly. But what we're talking about is 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 uh, uh, the rules of football and playing the game in that 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 framework which the rules of football are in. Uh, you, I guess, it's the Rugby World Cup. I probably should use rugby, but we'll use football. Do our policies sometimes move? from defining the rules of play, the rules of football, to defining how to play football. What I'm essentially saying is, do policies sometimes uh, creep, cross over to guidance, and then cross further to an SOP, a standard operating procedure, telling you to do exactly this and this in this circumstance, telling you that if the ball is on X position on the pitch, you must do X, Y, Z rather than allowing freedom for people to do things within that football pitch. I, I, by the way, I'm deliberately not providing exact examples, um, uh, but I wonder if you can. I also, I, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, I don't want anyone to take offense over their policies. It's, it, it, I'm just trying to uh, free up the ability to people to play football. For example, if you've got an SOP that tells a player uh, a defender that you must do exactly this in this position when there is uh, a, a, a variable which we haven't accounted for then that may not be the best action um policies i think should tell the rules of the game uh the rules of football but not necessarily tell you how to exactly play the game of football um i hope that's making some degree of sense by the way I'm also not saying something is wrong with SOPs in all of themselves if they're demarcated as SOPs. For example, naloxone needs an SOP, um, standard operating procedure, tells you very clearly, respiratory rate less than eight, step-by-step -step instructions of diluting your naloxone, you know, the 400 micrograms and 10 mils of saline, 0.4, giving IV slow, titrating respiratory rate. But, but... The SOP doesn't tell you who is toxic. It doesn't tell you if the patient is dying or not. It doesn't tell you about the infection, uh, potential infection or kidney function. It doesn't actually tell you a huge amount about stopping. It is a very uh, rigid, small area in which there is freedom around that to instigate that SOP or not. Are we, and this is the challenge of this, are we making some of our policies which become SOPs, um, uh, i.e. the rules of the game expanding into clinical decisions, pushing against some, I would say, more common sense clinical decisions. Are we saying in football terms, in a free kick, everyone on my team has to do this? Is standardized play the safest in every circumstance? Um, and it's a balance, isn't it? Um, uh, because you do need standardization as well, but there, there is a degree 
are the additional rules of the game dictating play? Dare I say? So, so Matt, can I just come in? Um, because this is a really interesting conversation. And um, there's a comment uh, in the chat box, um, which Caroline's put in and may like to come in and just reflect. Um, yeah. So, so Caroline, can, can we invite you to to come in? You've put a really interesting comment in the chat box. Hi, yeah, Caroline. Abso absolutely. Um, and, thank and thank you for having this discussion, because I think it's really pertinent and, and really interesting. And I work as a GP with people living with frailty. Um, and I think one of the issues is that the sort of people that are having to make decisions in community settings are generally not clinicians and they they don't have the support and backup of the system to help them accept risk. Um, and, and as such, the decisions have to become protocolized rather than personalized. Yeah. Um, um... Yeah, yeah, you and and there are you're absolutely right, Caroline. There's many rigidities within the system, and and I can see there's uh, I'm I, I I and I'm I, I as I said before, I don't actually have any answers other than trying to articulate the problem. And maybe maybe there are areas of rigidity which we can't change, but there may be areas of flexibility which we can. I don't know where those are, um, and and a. Uh, 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 to give people their uh, some 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 uh, control back in, in terms of being able to uh, make decisions and not be I, I know we everyone says it's blame free but but it it very much feels like they would be individually blamed for that decision so and and if something goes wrong there's learning from it however there's very little IR ones really regarding a type one area error where we send someone in and they just come out again um it but there's lots of pointed um uh exploration of someone who makes the decision not to send someone in and that turns out to be an incorrect decision totally but, agree with you totally yeah, agree yeah um and i i don't have i don't have an answer but i do have something I'll come to, which uh, will maybe a shift rather than drift is what I've, I've called it. But um, I, I love your thoughts on that in a, in, a, in, a, in a minute or two when I get to it, because you'll see that there is a future which is maybe slightly different to one we've got now. Um, if I was to return to, 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 to this, I, I'm just causing a thank you for reflecting because this is reflection as well. Our, and, and this is the hardest one, really. Are some of our policies serving the organization, not the patient, because of of this or all the clinicians? Um, I, I, how many policies does your hospice or organization have? Uh, have you read them all? Um, it, they're rhetorical as much as to you guys, uh, but we are judged by them. Why do RQIA, the uh, regulatory quality bodies, examine them so much? I, I, I think they examine them so much because they're trying to look for something objective to measure. And there, there often isn't, um, uh, there is, it's very hard to find something objective to measure. So they measure the, the, these, the, these policies and the details of these policies. So are we creating a system in which the those policies are, uh, are our standard we don't we're partly unaware of them we're partly uh you they use as a a bit of a uh a stick as you'll see um 
and I think the this has been documented in business world, the the increasing drift of policy in defining how to play. I mean, it's done out of good intention. It's good in, in most of the time. It's done to try and help the person make the decisions or or, or give them a, a. So this is what you do, but it shifts. It shifts from guidance or from teaching to a rules-based, deontological approach. It makes people into robots, not players on that football pitch. And it makes it thus a right way to do it. By making it a right way to do something, it also makes a wrong way to do something. And that, that, that wrong way is what plays on people's mind. And it paralyzes people, I think, not to go against the inverted commas rule, which has escalated from... Uh, from guidance to best practice to SOP. And, and because it makes a stick, which we're judged against, and uh, 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 why didn't you follow the policy, um, it, 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 causes, it potentially causes harm to staff because it affects your morale. And this has been, it's worth looking at this. Oh, I, I apologize, Max. I was going to put his name there. I can't remember it. But it was a TED Talks speaking exactly about this, that that um, if you make too many rules of things, if you make people robots, if you don't give them freedom, uh, if you don't give them responsibility, you, you the, the morale of the whole system gets lower because there's the, the, everything is is demarcated. It's, 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 it's hard. Um, so my conclusion with the, the, my football pitch analogy, my poorly drawn paint football picture is need you need some rules to define the game but not rules to define how to play and you but you also can i have specific sops for certain circumstances as and guidance to make us better and to really really compartmentalize those three definitions here's the reflection do uh, do we impose rules on other professionals i'm thinking nurses hps and and the, the staff. Do we sometimes create hoops with medical effects on, on patient care? Do people have to do loads and loads of paperwork and we keep adding to that? Are we truly providing governance or are we making a stick for people be, to be judged against? Because no one can see all eventualities in, in every, if everyone's tried to do a flowchart about anything, you realize that you can't do it really. Are we reactionary sometimes something comes in an IR1, a Datex, whatever you call it comes in and we suddenly create a whole bunch of rules for what was a very exceptional set of circumstances rather than try to um, take the circumstances are we creating an over-mechanized system so in story of Bob, did we truly offer support to make a type 2 error is, is, is what I was thinking um Kate, we'll hear from in a minute. She she had this uh, brilliant um, paper, which I won't go into, uh, but it, it, it's essentially outlining um, the, the how guidelines were. Well, I'll read it. The study is considered how guidelines influence or fail to influence four aspects of a single clinical case study from the perspective of a patient. A guidance that existed but what and was relevant but was not used. Uh, a guidance guideline that was not relevant but which was used, a guideline that was relevant but was misremembered and misapplied, and a guideline, guideline that did not exist but which was quoted by adherence of evidence-based medicine as if it had existed. 
um, the whole mess of things going on there. But let's take a left turn. And this is, Caroline, what I was going to talk to you about. Maybe the future is a, is a shift rather than a drift. Uh, you know antigens that sometimes flu it shifts, it, it, sorry, drifts, it slowly changes over time, and then it suddenly stepwise uh, shifts. So, so there's, there's, we're at the moment on a, a slope, a step. Is there a step coming? And and the step coming, I think, is 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 AI in healthcare. And there's uh, courses on it and, and and whatnot, and there's tons to read about it. But here to give you an, a, a real life example. So we're aware of the CURB-65 score for uh, chest infections, low pneumonias, low respiratory tract infections. And, and it's a score where you take confusion, urea, respiratory rate, blood pressure, and the age. And depending on your score, it, it affects your management and your antibiotics and things. Zero, one, two, three to five. Easy. Now, the thing about AI is we use those scores every day, and there's loads of scores. You probably can name loads of them. Um. The AI doesn't use a score like that. It looks at every single parameter, every metric. And then it doesn't just use five of them to make a prediction. It uses all of them. And then it doesn't use them to degrees. So a year, urea of seven triggers. No, it, it will use a urea of six, seven, eight, eight point five, ten, or or lower. And it stratifies that risk. And then it learns. So it wouldn't create a score, rather a likelihood, a percentage, taking into account all the innumerable factors. And there'll be positive factors and negative factors. Now, it's not hard to imagine AI, when it has all your demographics, OBS, bloods, presenting history, medications, it can formulate a plan depending on what your presenting complaint is and weigh out the probabilities correctly for a type 1 or a type 2 error. And is the future an AI physician associate, if you like, um, for want of better language, and, and in the future, an AI investigation, diagnosis, treatment plan. And in the future, would it be remiss to follow or not follow the AI plan? Are you were given this plan by AI and we have to justify our actions against the best care of an AI plan? Um, my question is, will we even have a football pitch to play on actually? Or will we have to follow the designated AI plan for a lot of these things. So uh, good in one way, bad in another. But here's a story time AI. So a nursing home assistant thinks Bob isn't quite right. So she phones her manager. Her manager hears her concerns, not quite right, and types into her AI assistant the situation. The AI assistant knows Bob's history and medications and previous investigations. AI asks for observations and a few specific questions to ask, such as a as, is there chest pain, you know, palpitations? Is there, what's the temperature? Things like that. The manager and the care assistant get what AA asked for and answer the questions instantly. AA from thousands of previous instances and its experience give a 95% chance it's okay to stay and observe. And this risk is discussed with the patient and family and they decide to stay in the nursing home. AI provides some important safety net observations to, to, to watch during the, the interim for the next 24 hours data has a better idea. So I I wonder if we are moving, I know we're not there yet, to an AI rod, an AI standardized. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? In some ways, as a really evidence-based probability scored 
uh, risk stratification, it may be a quite a good thing. Just to outline, I know we've talked about AI before, and, and this is a very, you know, one of those trick questions. If it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? So in July 23, uh, which was not far off when we last talked about AI, it got that wrong. There's ChatGPT getting it wrong. Just a couple of weeks ago, I did the same again, and it's got it completely right. Um, this is moving very, and I said this before, moving very, very, very quickly. Here's our news update very quickly. I wanted to show you this. This is a QR code for the new uh, updated Scottish palliative care guidelines. I've had to flick through it. It, it looks excellent. It looks really, really good. Um, uh, it can, you can use it very easily on your phone. It's kind of um, uh, like uh, like an app, but it's a web page, and on the in, on just on the normal computer as well is brilliant. I highly recommend it. Although I haven't used it hugely yet, but I plan to do so. Um, this is, came up uh, was um, views needed on priorities for palliative care research. Um, so nurses are being urged to share their views on the areas of palliative and end of life care that need to be prioritised for research for the next few years. Marie Curie, please. Um, if that's you, please let your views be aware. And there's a QR code. This uh, presentation will be in the um, resources if you don't have, if you want to come back and do uh, use the, these QR codes. Hospice funding falls short by 47 million. This was um, a report by the uh, Hospice UK um, uh, very recently. Um, it is uh, a harrowing read. Please have a, a look. And, and it's what we're going to talk about. Um, maybe we'll talk a bit about it next month. We've got the all-party parliamentary group and hospice and end-life care, uh, Hospice UK, uh, myself for APM. And I am not certain, but I think either Marie Curie or Sue Ryder or both are also there, in which we are going to very much... Uh, this is on Monday, 16th of October, going to uh, advocate why is palliative care in the charitable sector where all the healthcare is 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 funded more centrally. Um, I wanted to highlight this as well. At the moment, uh, Max alluded to the Labour Party conference. There was stands run by Hosp Hospice UK, Marie Curie, Sue Ryder, Together Short Lives and National Bereavement Alliance, um, where they published a manifesto for palliative and survive care, an easy sort of off the shelf. Here, if you become the next government, use this manifesto. And it's brilliant. It's really good. Um, again, the QR code there if you want to read it. It's only that one page. Um, it, you, I, I would be surprised if anyone disagrees with any of it. Um, I wanted to highlight this paper, which was just released last week in the BMJ, Oregon Death with Diniat Access, a 25-year analysis, going through all the recent research uh, by Claude Reginard and, 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 and Anna Worthing and uh, Laura Finlay. Matt, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Apologise to everybody for not being there today. I had another ECHO meeting that I couldn't get out of, a little bit of a sensitive meeting. Um, but really glad to be with you today. 
and to have this chance maybe to share a little bit uh, following on from Matt uh, about some of the interventions that have been taking place in, in ECHO uh, and uh, give you a little bit of an update on what was happening at the Meta ECHO conference. We've been part of this ECHO community, I guess, since uh, uh, the, the beginning of COVID. And uh, yeah, we've evolved and the worldwide ECHO movement has evolved too. So a bit about the conference overview, some announcements from the conference, palliative care and what's been happening on a worldwide basis in relation to the use of ECHO methodology, some of the bigger ECHO stories from across the worldwide ECHO community, and the importance of gender equity, um, gender equity a cornerstone of the worldwide ECHO movement. And then the most mind-blowing bit, the connecting of ECHO with AI and how do we quantify, maximize the ECHO juice, which is so different from that of, of a webinar, to, to really improve the speed of development and addressing key problems. For those who don't know, ECHO stands for Extension of Community Healthcare Outcomes, and it began in this place, New Mexico, Albuquerque, um, when a hepatologist discovered that people were dying across the state who, from lack of good information and good support. And it was that desire to provide good information and good support that began the ECHO movement 20 years ago. So... The essence of ECHO it comes from this quote from Margaret Mead, the anthropo anthropologist. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And at its heart, ECHO is all about that small group of thoughtful, committed citizens, people like you, who have been part of this ECHO movement and this ECHO network seeking to ensure that the care that we deliver in palliative care across the UK is as good as it can be and as well informed as it can be. So the Meta Echo Conference, there were over 2,000 delegates from all over the world. This is a world movement, half came virtually, over 400 presentations. It's now established itself as a world movement with buy-in from governments, universities, huge organization funders and organizations from across uh, the, the continents of the world. Little different from other conferences, there wasn't much ego on display. The people who were there were there not primarily because of ego, because of echo. They were there because they had a vision to change the world in a positive way in their own particular areas. And echo was a tool to help them achieve that. So it, it was a very impressive conference with very impressive people doing things to make the world a bit better. There were some key announcements. WHO confirmed their relationship with ECHO. Through COVID, the WHO were partnered with ECHO to help share knowledge about COVID-19 across the world. That relationship has now been segmented or cemented, rather cemented, in, in a formal agreement. Uh, the vision of ECHO has been expanded. The, the, the world vision was of impacting the lives of a billion people by the end of 2025. That's now been expanded to impacting on the lives of 3.5 billion people. So no shortage of ambition mentioned the gender equity equality uh, has been recognized as core to echo 
and then we're going to talk about AI a little bit later. Hospice UK, among with among other organizations, received a Global Excellence Award. This award particularly highlighted the work of our network here and the work that this network did through COVID. So this is an award for you and for the work that you partook of, particularly during the those, those first months of COVID when we worked together to try to ensure that we uh, were responding to the best evidence possible. And we're learning from each other how to deliver our care in those circumstances. Uh, Raj Gopal from Pallium, India. Many of you will, will know him and his worldwide cities. He also received an award for the work that Pallium has been doing using Project ECHO. Uh, so worldwide, the growth of palliative care with ECHO has been e extensive uh, across South America, Uruguay, as an example, 24 uh, rural hospitals connected to the central Montevideo palliative care unit. Canada, Pallium Canada, using Project ECHO in training and support across some of the most uh, underpopulated areas on the planet. In Africa, in South Asia, in the States, ECHO networks supporting palliative care delivery and then supporting isolated palliative care practitioners. Pallium India, as we mentioned, as an example, are currently running 24 ECHO networks across a range of different areas and topics and uh, allied health professional groups um, to, to support the, the knowledge and growth of, of palliative care. Wanted to highlight just one more. This is uh, Megan Doherty, who received a National Canadian Award uh, this year for her work in pediatric palliative care. She's a pediatric pediatric palliative doctor consultant working out uh, of Canada. Uh, and she uh, has been uh, running a palliative, pediatric palliative care network, uh, ECHO network from Myanmar right through to Pakistan for uh, several, I think it's three years now. Huge impact. I was with her at the Indian Association of Palliative Care Congress and people were coming up to her from all over, thanking her for the support uh, because pediatric palliative care, even more isolated than palliative care. And that network has been a, a godsend to many. If you're interested in her work, there's a podcast which accompanies the network, the Sunflower Palliative Care podcast supported by Two Worlds in Canada. Uh, the echo stories across the world were uh, e e even more amazing. In India, ECHO has been used by Premier Modi uh, with the goal to eliminate TB by the end of 2025 using ECHO to support uh, healthcare workers. Across the states in autism work, uh, real concerns that people with autism are being diagnosed late. ECHO is involved in helping healthcare professionals make those diagnoses in, in an informed and earlier way so people can get treatment and help at a time critical point. Um, also at the at the Congress, uh, we, we were part of prison networks and were able to connect in with prison and prisoners uh, and see just the impact that ECHO has had on improving prisoner health 
our own uh, UK uh, prison echo networks are also really impressive. In Canada, suicide prevention programs supported by ECHO. In Kenya, for the last four years, ECHO uh, helping healthcare professionals deliver care for, for people with sickle cell disease. Vietnam, again, TB and HIV elimination programs supported by ECHO. In the Ukraine, uh, healthcare professionals, no matter what their specialty, now being taught trauma management in, in light of, of the war going on there, uh, being taught uh, through ECHO. And one other example from Ethiopia, village midwives engaging in ECHO through their phones. Uh, and, and one of the things that they've really embraced has been not clamping the cord for three minutes after the birth, um, which allows for the retention of really important cells. This already has documentedly reduced neonatal mortality. Echo stories from across the world. Just some examples of the, of the posters, just backing up the, the amazing work that communities of well-meaning people with a vision to make things better and to change the way that they work to, to better suit the needs of their population, what they're doing from, yeah, from cervical cancer to palliative care to gender equity, highlighting the importance of ECHO in, in supporting uh, girls' and women's health, workforce and leadership development, uh, awareness of the particular needs of women raising and helping governments meet their UN goals. I'm going to take a, a, a shift left to the stuff that really blew my mind. Infosys, we know about Infosys in India because of our connection with our prime minister's wife. But Infosys have a pro bono arm, societal thinking. And societal thinking is, is um, committed to improving uh, the response to societal issues using uh, uh, artificial intelligence and IT. And societal thinking has, has collaborated with ECHO to try to improve and deliver um, changes to uh, awareness of healthcare issues at, at, a, at a global level. Uh, so, uh, yeah, okay, that's all the word. What, 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 what might this actually mean for us? Well, uh, using AI to tackle societal problems. We're aware of, of palliative care problems across our, our, our world and across our country, large, complex, evolving, contextual. And in order for us to address these, uh, we, we need the ability to harness the collective wisdom of our palliative care network. Uh, but our inability to do this limits our ability to solve problems with speed and with scale. We need to be able to move from data collection, the known, to developing relationships with partners, with key knowledge, the known unknown, uh, building that community and that ecosystem to develop new ways of working, the unknown unknowns to deliver real impact. Um, so that's the kind of the model that they have worked on and to put thousands and thousands of hours in to, 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 to make, uh, if you like, an AI background to Margaret Mead's quote. So uh, how can this collective wisdom be amplified, last beyond the echo meetings, accumulate and evolve combinatory combined with other 
trustworthy sources, uh, be traceable about where the knowledge came from and where it arose from, be available in multiple languages, um, and uh, be made available for the rapid public good. So this, this is big system thinking, Matt. I hope you're impressed. So uh, the AI bot can sit in your echo meetings and analyze kind of what's happening in terms of the interactivity. Is this a proper echo or is it just a webinar? But AI can also, two big tools, uh, the tool is called aperva.ai, aperva.ai. It's been created, it's, it's functional, um, and it can constantly be summarizing and collating the knowledge which is shared in an echo network meeting, irrespective of what language it's in, uh, and, and be constantly summarizing, pulling it together, and giving you your, your key calls to action. So this process, we call it building the network brain. So you, if it's just, you just want to leave it to the knowledge from that particular network, you build the network brain just based on that. So this allows for a, a summary of, of all this waffle that you're hearing today and reduced down to a clear kind of a, a, a linking in with material that's gone on before previously in our echo network. How does it relate? So that's the AI co-creation arm. And then there's the AI knowledge arm, uh, which uh, allows you to uh, expand the uh, echo network brain uh, to include other sources, maybe government documents, maybe literature, peer-reviewed literature, maybe video uh, podcasts, or so a wide range of materials that the AI tool can incorporate uh, and, and allow your network brain, if you choose it to, to expand that network brain uh, so that as you are running your, your network, you've got this larger brain, which is synthesizing the information, but also giving you a commentary of how this uh, information which you're discussing in your echo is also relating to the wider body of knowledge which you've previously created or relates to the wider knowledge of knowledge uh, which is, you, you've agreed to, to uh, build in and bring into your, your new network brain. So this allows you then to interrogate your brain in terms of um, what the network is actually capable of, what its knowledge areas are, what its main worries are, what it, uh, and so it allows you to be much more focused in the development of the knowledge of each individual network. And you could imagine how um, commissioners would be really interested to see the, the growth in knowledge and, and awareness and the highlighting the key areas that need to be addressed. So, yeah, uh, Matt, have I blown your mind yet? I hope so. <laughs> it blew mine. Uh, and oh, is this safe? Is it done? But because you're keeping it and you're in control of where the components, parts of your brain are coming from, I think this has got a lot going for it. We'll find out as the the tools develop they should be available next year thank you so just to finish looking forward to meeting as many of you as possible at the uh, hospice uk conference in liverpool you'll recognize the background um, that's where the, the labor party are holding their conference at the moment this week uh, so we're going there in november look forward to seeing you and i just wanted to finish by highlighting 
one more new ECHO network. It's the Race Equity ECHO network, and it's for visibly ethnic minority staff, clinical and non-clinical, working in palliative care. So this ECHO uh, uh, will facilitate discussions around the experience of racism in a safe and supported environment. It is not for people like me who are white British. Uh, it is a, a, a really a safe space for people visibly, ethnically minority staff. And this has arisen out of the data that we saw, uh, uh, startling data that we saw uh, through COVID. So the aim is to build a community of practice to celebrate the strengths of ethnic minority staff and to create and share experience on progressing anti-racism practice within the specialty. If you're interested, please just email or, or contact echo at hospiceuk.org, echo at hospiceuk.org. Sorry, I can't be with you in person this afternoon, um, but I'm delighted to still bring you virtually uh, Research Corner. Those of you I have not met before, my name's Professor Kate Fleming, um, and I'm Professor of Hospice Practice at the University of York um, in the Department of Health Sciences. Uh, so this month's paper, um, we've, I've picked one that uh, looks again about um, how hospices and palliative care teams work within uh, the local healthcare systems. Um, and this is a fairly recent paper that's just been published by Catherine Walsh and colleagues um, who are based at the University of Lancaster at the um, International Observatory for End-of-Life Care. And what the paper's looking at is actually about an enhanced seven-day specialist palliative care service that they put in place. Um, and they took a mixed methods approach to uh, evaluating that. Um, so the aim of the study was um, to evaluate the effectiveness and the effect of this enhanced seven-day specialist palliative care services. And this happened in two locations. And I'll, I'll tell a little bit more about that in the next slide. Um, so that was kind of the quantitative component of it, and the qualitative was to explore a range of perspectives uh, from those who were using the enhanced services and those delivering them. So uh, interviewing patients and carers about the enhanced services and how they find things, and also healthcare professionals. So what did they do? Um, so the setting and the interventions, there's two settings across the UK, so a nice UK-based study that we can learn from. Um, both of the settings were geographically large. Um, they had diverse populations and were in 20% of the most deprived local authority areas. Um, so big, large settings, uh, big diverse populations and quite deprived. Specialist palliative care services in these two UK settings were funded to provide enhanced seven-day services across the entirety of the healthcare system. So that included acute hospitals and community-based work. Um, and so the intervention was, was across all areas of the system. And I know Matt's been talking to you today um, about those broader healthcare systems and that our systems approach uh, to thinking and decision-making as well. So what were the enhancements that they put in? Uh, predominantly, it was about um, increasing numbers of staff working um, at weekends and out of hours. But it, alongside this, there were real changes in staff skill mix. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So across the two sites, these were slightly different. Um, so in the first site, there was a nurse-led staffing model that might be familiar to some of you. Um, they put in a senior nurse uh, role to focus on, on more complex patients and interventions, um, and also have their this particular nurse-led staffing uh, group supporting the specialist palliative care team as well. In the second site, uh, it was a more physician-led staffing model. Um, there was additional medical staff employed. Um, these were two locum staff, and they had support from additional nursing staff, um, and these were two band seven nurses. And they do say in the paper that actually um, it was more challenging to get the staffing in for the set on the physician-led staffing model than it was on the nurse-led staffing model. So essentially what they're talking about when they talk about enhanced services are increases in number of staff and skill mix. And so it might feel a little bit like, well, the one thing we're really struggling with at the moment is getting the right staff in the right place. Um, this is work that was done pre-COVID. And again, that we're seeing papers and papers coming out now on research that was conducted um, pre-COVID just because of delays in writing up and, and getting published. But actually, I think there can be broader lessons that we learn from this saying, actually, we might not have more members of staff in, a, in any one system, but are the staff in the right place? So the quantitative component of the study, so it was mixed methods, so there was some quantitative and some qualitative. They collected routine data uh, from people who accessed uh, specialist palliative care services um, in both study locations. Um, and this was done retrospectively uh, for pre the pre-intervention, so before they made the change, and then prospectively, so looking forward, and collecting the data as after they made the change. And if you remember the paper we looked at last month, uh, that looked at hospital episode statistics, again, was using data that are collected um, nationally and access those from that data set. Um, and again, this is a paper also using routine data, but of a different type. This was data collected more locally. The qualitative component of the paper um, was, or the study uh, was uh, interviews with people receiving specialist palliative care, their family carers, but also with the specialist palliative care staff working within the localities. And it's really helpful to hear from both people receiving services, but also to hear about how enhancements might help people who are delivering services as well. So what did they find? In the quantitative data, so it was routinely collected data, a large data set across the uh, across the timeframes of, um, yeah, of five and a half thousand people. Um, generally, and perhaps not surprisingly, these were people in early old age. The mean age of the population was 73 years. There's a fairly equal gender split between 49% female and 51% male. Predominantly, they were white, British or Irish. Um, and there was a high incidence of cancer in those people referred in. So the data showed that actually, as the, from before the intervention was put in, which was the enhanced service towards, and as they then collected data after that had been put in, that there was a real trend towards a decreased length of stay in hospital with the enhanced skill mix and the enhanced services. But actually, there was likelihood of people being admitted more frequently um, to to have symptoms controlled, to, to try and manage things, but actually once people were in, they were discharged more quickly. Those people who were using services were generally more unwell. Um, and actually this, the difference in some service use um, that were demonstrated across the study uh, depended on somebody's age. Um, not surprisingly, there was an increased length of stay and number of admissions with older age. Um, with gender, 
um, interestingly, women having longer lengths of stay, but with fewer admissions. Um, and these are data that were kind of descriptive, but they weren't then, there wasn't then kind of a rationale given for why this might be. Um, and also the diagnosis. Um, people with cancer had shorter hospitalizations than people with non-cancer diagnoses who were needing palliative end-of-life care. As a result of the uh, enhanced services, more people died in their preferred place of death um, and fewer people died in hospital. So overall, it looked as if um, putting the enhanced services in uh, led to decreased length of stay, um, uh, maybe some more admissions, but those were shorter admissions. People were generally quite unwell, um, but actually people tend to define, die more in their preferred place of death. So the qualitative data, these were taken or these were established through interviews after the intervention had been put in place from um, a number of patients with 19 patients and 23 family carers and healthcare professionals. In total, it was 33 healthcare professionals of all different um, uh, genres um, interviewed. And some of those were pre-intervention and some were post-intervention. Um, so and, and there was an overlap between pre and post as well as so some interviews interviewed before and afterwards. And in general, they found five key things that came out of the interviews uh, from both different perspectives. Um, the first thing was about the responsiveness of the service. Uh, there was, um, people felt that their um, patients and carers in particular, there was an ability to identify and respond to individual patient needs much more quickly and ability to respond in a timely manner to changing needs as well. So not just when things happen, but when things then changed um, because of the skill mix and, and the, the increased availability of staff on out of hours and at weekends. So possibly no surprise that actually if you've got more people there at the weekend or out of hours, actually you can respond more quickly. There's also more reassurance, and this was split um, between both patients and families and for staff, that actually patients and families felt more reassured because they knew that services were available um, when they, you know, if they needed a service, it was more likely to be available. So it could get to five o'clock on a Friday and they know, knew that a service was available into Friday evening and also over the weekend. Um, and just the nature of that reassurance and, and the knowledge that, that that was there gave particular enhancement to, to patients and families. But actually for staff, they found a real reassurance that they had, they were able to work like alongside other colleagues um, at weekends rather than being alone. So there was, there was greater you know, ability to discuss and, and greater enhanced decision-making through having more folk around than, than very isolated individual decision-making. The staff had felt like they had kind of better working environment by having other people alongside them. There's also enhancement in relationships, um, particularly through staff, um, um, sorry, with between patients and staff through greater continuity of care, which we know from other research really enhances um, patients and carers' um, kind of uh, reassurance and, and, and satisfaction with services if they get continuity of care. And, and, and we know that things don't get missed. But also between teams of professionals, because there was the enhanced services throughout the whole system and throughout out of hours and the weekends, there's much greater visibility of the teams um, in the system. So people are more like to ask them, um, more likely to approach them about patients, which great um, enhance sort of continuity of care for, for those patients as well. There's a couple more elements um, around the qualitative work as well. Um, 
they've found to be really good reciprocity um, between patients, family carers and staff, that there was more time to listen, um, that uh, staff's value, um, their, their knowledge and expertise was valued, um, and there was greater joint decision-making between patients, carers and staff um, because of this reciprocity um, and because of the increased time and availability of specialist teams. And, and one really nice outcome of it, and one that kind of will resonate with all of you, um, is about retention of staff. Um, because of the additional skill mix, um, because there was a creation of more senior nursing roles, this has seemed to be a really important factor in retaining staff within the services. Um, it enabled there to be career progression and promotion opportunities whilst people were able to keep a clinical role. And so that staff could see that there was career progression for them within these teams um, and the promotion opportunities were available and that enabled them um, the services to retain staff rather than having to leave elsewhere to gain promotion. So all of these findings were deemed to be as a direct result of the additional capacity afforded by the enhanced seven-day programme. So what's the way forward from this? We'd like to kind of take a message away. Um, so enhanced support was well received by staff, both within and outside the specialist palliative care services, and was really valued by patients and families carers. Um, I think the most important aspect of the enhancement that came across was it in, uh, for all participants that it enabled relationships, and that was relationships to develop between staff and patients, but also between staff as well. And this was really highly valued and kind of enhanced job, um, job uh, satisfaction. Um, but it was also the skill mix brought about by the enhanced services was seen as really integral to the positive effects, particularly with the role and the importance of the senior nurses within those teams. But actually one of the things I really highlight about the enhancement and the changes, um, that actually what seemed to happen that those who were already benefiting from the service um, and accessing services continued to do so. But actually what there was was less impact on those with different underlying diagnoses or from minority ethnic populations. And so a real strong recommendation that's coming out of this study is that if you're looking to enhance your service, um, you need to identify those populations who aren't accessing services to start with and design any changes in collaboration with or led by those, uh, those populations, communities. So again, thinking about how this particular paper sits in the, in the broader um, theme of today's ECHO, it is actually about that where, where are our palliative care services sitting? Where do they sit within systems? So this, this study sits really nicely in saying, you know, if we enhance services and we interact more with the specialist palliative care teams with that, our enhanced services, then actually we can, we can really make a difference within the system. But in doing that, we mustn't ignore people who aren't already, you know, already aren't accessing and, and we need to, to really design things in collaboration with these folk. So again, sorry I'm not with you. I might manage to catch you towards the end of end of the session if I'm lucky. Um, and if not, I shall look forward to seeing some of you at um, Hospice UK conference uh, next month in November. Um, and if not, then I look forward to seeing you back on the Echo in December. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Kate. Um, that's fantastic. Um, uh, loads to learn and better for patients and for staff alike.
Um, uh, I am really keen to hear about responsive emergency ass assessment and community team. Uh, can you enlighten us all um, about this? Hopefully, yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, I think I've got several minutes, so um, I will get going. So I'm a consultant up in Bradford, um, and this um, I'm talking to you about a new service that started in June last year. Um, do, can I control the slides, or is someone doing it for me? Last note it is my uh, uh, rubbish finger. So <laughs> tell me uh, in in any fashion you deem fit to to move on. Thank you. I will, hopefully in a polite way. Um, so we um, in Bradford started thinking about some of the uh, challenges we have within our kind of local population, health economy, demographics um, around palliative care. Um, and sort of our case for change in why we needed this uh, new service was based on sort of these four things here. So the data that we had to hand um, showed we were a national outlier in terms of hospital use at the end of life. So we um, were, I don't know if we still are, but were the second highest nationally for non-elective admission. So unplanned bed days in the last three uh, months of life. Um, and that compares sort of England averages 7.5%. We were up at 12.6%. Um, and there's a little bit of uh, jiggery pokery there, I guess, in terms of our uh, the reporting for that comes from three different areas that we're all involved in. But there's large variation within that. So within our really city area, that's 12.6%. But over across in our kind of more rural area, uh, that drops down to 5%. So there felt like there was really real inequity across our kind of geographical um, area that we cover. And that was also reflected in things like hospital death rates, um, and also in um, people who have accessed, um, we have a telemedicine system called Goldline that's non-specialist. So anyone who anyone thinks might be in that final year of life, it uses gold standards framework to support it. It's a 24-7 nursing uh, line who has access to all of our out of hours and in hours support. Um, and that's a proxy marker for people recognising that someone might be coming to the end of life. And again, big variability across our place. We also know from that, having that gold line, that we had about a thousand patients that we thought we should be able to identify as in the last year of life and that we didn't. And we already have a very stretched emergency department, as most are, um, and a kind of restricted, obviously, hospital bed base. Um, and what we thought was probably some unnecessary admissions to hospital. So this was sort of all the things that we would, we knew were going on. And our Marie Curie React was one way of thinking about trying to um, help with some of these things. So next slide, please. So um, what we have is we applied to um, the end of life integrator, which some of you I'm sure will have heard of. I think they've got, a, uh, I think they're out for bids at the moment. Um, so that's that's a social finance um, company that has funding uh, from various parties um, and they do lots of other stuff other than end of life care. But it's a social impact bond. So you basically bid to them with a kind of model. If they think it's a goer, they help you build that up a bit of a competitive process. And we were um, 
agreed a three-year pilot um which started as i said clinically in june last year um it only happened, I would say, because we had collaboration. So it very, very much is about between the acute trust, the Bradford Teaching Hospitals Trust, and our local Marie Curie Hospice, and with the support of Marie Curie nationally. Um, and that at the beginning and continues to be a really key reason why this hopefully is working. Our aim was to reduce avoidable hospital admissions because that's where the money comes from that's that pricks up acute trust is and support across the system and to provide good quality end of life care to all and to try and focus on some of those underserved communities and try and um stop some of that variation across our place next slide please so what what is it so we have two arms to our service so for the first year um, we have me and a consultant colleague have been in our emergency department. Um, so it's consultant led while we're there, obviously. And we're finding patients that we think we might be able to turn around and uh, doing an assessment, often some advanced care planning, initiate management plans. It is um, often a mix of what feels very barn door palliative care and very acute palliative care. So there's a real mix of what we see. Um, and and if we can turn those patients around, we have a virtual ward to support them, um, which is sort of the community arm. So that's a multidisciplinary team uh, rapid response, which will follow up that care symptom management. Um, it's healthcare's RNs, CNS's specialty doctor, physio. Um, and the idea is that you would only be within our service for 72 hours. So that's the sort of aim of it. Um, next slide, please. Uh, what we're about to do um, is that step up model. So open to community. So that's happening well at the moment and in November. So not only it being a bit ridiculous that you have to come into an emergency department to access the service. So we have obviously lots of other people involved um, who we want to refer to stop that conveyance and to help with care at, at home. Uh, next slide, please. So um, just from a patient perspective, um, it, it, that's quite a nice quote, I think. I think that's probably what we all hope within palliative care that we are doing um, about being alongside a patient and being their advocate, really, and being uh, trying to support people where they want to be. Uh, next slide. One of the, um, please, one of the unintended consequences that I think is impact in the ED department itself for staff. Um, we, I know a bit about workforce earlier. I think um, our trust would say that it's been a really uh, positive move to be in the ED department. And uh, we have built really good relationships um, and so much so that sometimes uh, we have raised expectations further than we can um, support sometimes. But um, I think that's only a good thing. So it feels like that's been an unanticipated kind of success of what we've done so far. Uh, next slide, please. So these are kind of the numbers about, so we're up at about, I don't know, 550 now. So this was about year one. So obviously we're a bit further in. What we know is that the money bit of it is about reduction in unplanned bed days. And we look like we half bed days in hospital, if you're known to us. So obviously we don't, see patients might survive for only a number of days or a number of months so there is some impact there 
um, even if we're not seeing people at the beginning of that final year, if that makes sense. So that looks attractive from a monetary point of view. Um, from in terms of access, it looks like about 40% of the patients that we're seeing ha- aren't previously known to any palliative care service or have any palliative kind of codes in their record. So that includes kind of GP district nursing. So that feels like we are doing part of that widening the reach of who, who we're seeing. Um, in terms of patient and staff experience, we definitely see, and again, it mirrors kind of some of that stuff that was just mentioned previously about um, those feelings of security and reassurance for um, patients and families. I think staff confidence in what they can do and can't do certainly with an ED, I think is definitely increased. I think what we're finding is that um, now we've shown the art of the possible when it doesn't happen, um, that can feel very difficult for our ED colleagues. Um, and so we're providing some of that ongoing support for that key to getting this working is system-wide working so we have a steering group led by our well ccg as it was our place-based colleagues um that pulls in everyone kind of across the community and the acute trust and that's been really important for kind of embedding within existing services um and will be really important when we're thinking as we already are about sustainability um just in terms of what our finance colleagues say in terms of the service model and the cost, it looks like our first year suggests we're providing a two to one return on investment. Um, it's all still very new, I would say, and those figures are um, brilliant, but we're still very much at the beginning. And as most things within palliative care, unfortunately, we, we have to wait for our patients to die before we can look at the finances in the last year of life. So we're always playing a bit of catch up in that sense. Um, so it feels like it's been a really successful model. We have had challenges around workforce which won't be a surprise to people I think and the service model because it hasn't been done before to my knowledge we we didn't have a model to pick up and use um but one of the joys of working with social finances funders is that they kind of allow us to play around if you like within a financial envelope so it's meant that we have been able to change our service model to reflect what we're seeing as the need um data is a constant challenge so um we're obviously working for, um, we're obviously sharing data between the trust and between um, a charity and doing all those bits in between. And that has proved challenging to kind of get the numbers that we need. Um, I think what we've found is that it has increased our clout. I don't know if that's right for those of you in hospitals or, or wanting to increase kind of palliative care within the acute sector, it's definitely helped with that kind of knowledge of palliative care being in ED. And I think across the system, working within seeing all of the people that can be involved in a patient's care has helped us link in to try and improve that through existing systems. Uh, I think I'm done, ready for any questions that might come. Oh, Claire, there will be questions. Uh, can I ask a few uh, uh, while, and also, is it possible uh, just after to to put your email if in the, yeah. in the box for, for questions? Um, you mentioned at the beginning you benchmarked, um, uh, and and Bradford wasn't doing as well against the national average in terms of dying in hospital. Um, uh, uh, is that is was that a, a specific 
thing or is that like nasal are we repeating that to see the effects as it were so i think so we will we will be looking at that again i think in the fullness of time it came up from the end uh the end of life intelligence um data that that came up through so it was a comparison across west yorkshire um so i think it was public health data that that had come from um so not specific kind of from our trust but yeah looking across the board and can I ask two more specific questions? One is uh, we've tried to do um, less, very much less successfully and, and with less enthusiasm, I think, in, in terms of ED. Um, how do you practically, pragmatically get a patient which has been brought in end of life home? We had barriers in terms of ambulances and uh, panicked family and, and all those kind of things. And also, do you work 24-7 or is it more in hours? Because obviously ED is a 24-7 kind of process. So the first question is we built, we the service spec was for 24-7, but um, from a community virtual ward model, um, it always was with consultant input, just one PA a day, so for a morning or an afternoon a day. So that cover wasn't 24-7. We changed that pretty early on, partly through... Um, workforce in terms of recruiting to a 24-7 model and partly about need and recognizing the other people in the system that would help with that overnight so we're an eight till ten but we still are only an ed in normal working hours um so we've um in te what tends to happen is if someone comes in in an evening or overnight most people feel they're unsafe to be discharged are kind of fail or um people with difficult so what tends to happen in a department is that they will say wait for react in the morning okay <laughs> so that's sort of adapted around us rather than rather than needing to, to be there the second question so just to say we we're talking about kind of palliative care and its fullness so actually um we of that number that 426 about 30 are one people that are imminently dying and that we would you know in the department you can argue hospital palliative care teams do that anyway um but but uh more patients i think are those you're thinking last months and weeks and we're thinking last days there are delays in transport transport is a constant issue around ambulance and various ways of getting people home um but i think for me having that virtual ward to say and though and our cns's will come to the emergency department if they can so in the perfect scenario they meet me but they also meet the cns who's going to see them at home in four hours so in that kind of reassurance around that in terms of we're here for the acute crisis for the next 72 hours while we sort all these other problems out and we'll refer on as necessary i think provides some of that reassurance it also works in part because of the uh, health health uh, services around us and what we can also plug into. I, I think it's fantastic work. I really do. And I, I the REACT, I, I, I can see that's an acronym being made uh, with a with the word in mind before it, uh, and then fitting it around. And then, but it works really well. And I also agree as systems, and we're talking about systems, we need to have 
we can't ever prevent and and all the concentration for the last 30 years has been prevent ed emissions but actually we're never going to prevent them all and there needs to be mechanisms uh, uh to, to get them home from ed and also i guess uh like you said with the 72 hours of the community uh the prevention arm if you like I think it's brilliant. Um, I think well. just a quick one, if I can, to say that two thirds of patients we see we get home, a third come into hospital. But even for those patients, we reduce, we reduce their length of stay. And I think that's about early clinical decision making of using of like escalation planning, whatever you use for that. Um, and um, early referral to the hospital palliative care team. So both myself and Lucy, who do the work in the ED for React, we're also the hospital palliative care consultant. So being linked into that, I think also has been quite a big, uh, it's been very helpful. Uh, Melanie. Is there anything you want to tell us about? Which might it be really is. Yes. Hello, everyone. Um, and thank you for the extra opportunity to mention the approach of one of the important dates in the palliative care calendar. As you heard from Max, Hospice UK's national conference is back in Liverpool at the ACC from the 6th to the 8th of November. Um, next slide, please. So do join us this year as we think differently about the big trends, challenges and opportunities in all age hospice and end of life care across the four nations. If you're thinking about it, then we've got it covered with themes addressing workforce, financial sustainability, uh, data-driven decision-making, digital ways of working and promoting diversity and inclusion. We're also online um, and those joining us online will be able to view all of the plenary sessions plus a number of parallel sessions across those three days. Online delegates can also ask questions, view posters and interact with other attendees, both in Liverpool and online. So great opportunities there. And final slide, please. Uh, I would say that tickets are selling really fast, so don't delay. Um, and if you're looking to be energised by new thinking, inspired by a massive poster exhibition this year, which is packed full of new approaches, plus opportunities to meet with hundreds of people working in hospice and end-of-life care, then do come along. Um, and just to say, because conference is never over in my world, if you're thinking about submitting work for conference 2024, then do look out for some new activities we'll be doing ahead of the call for papers next year in order to support new authors and help others make their abstracts the best they possibly can be. That's me. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, please, please remember, remember the 6th of November. Uh, we're going to close with a poem, but there's a twist. It's by someone called Andy Indigo. In ancient lands where legends sleep, by Hadrian's walls so vast and deep, stood a sycamore tall and proud, its branches whispered tales aloud. Robin, with his bow so true, underneath the sky so blue, saw the tree, a symbol grand of changing times and shifting sand. Its leaves like pages turned with grace, told stories of wild, free chase but in the shadow of the night came whispers of a different plight rules arose like castle towers judgment fell like springtime showers life once wild now chained and bound in a world where rules were crowned yet robin with his steadfast gaze saw hope within those somber days for each tale of hardship see a chance for hearts to roam be free 
He carved an arrow strong and bright from the sycamore's one moonlit night, a symbol of your yielding will against the norms he battles still. With every shot, he pierced the dark, aiming true at rules that hark. Bring to times when hearts were light before the world lost its sight. So let this tale of sycamore be a lesson evermore, that in the face of rules and woe, a rebel spirit continues to grow. For in the heart of Robin's band lies the hope from this changing land, that even in the hardest climb, we'll find a way to dance through time. That is a poem written by ChatGPT again with this prompt. Can you write a fun poem about a felled sycamore tree on Hadrian's Wall used in Robin Hood as a symbol of the changing times in which rules are becoming more predominant and expected. Life is becoming more judgmental and times are hard. Thank you. I hope you find today useful and interesting. If you'd like to have a look at the slides which accompany the podcast, these are available on the Hospice UK website under Project Echo for those who have registered for the Echo Network. If you'd like to register, email echo at hospiceuk.org.